circle back for this last panel to um, alliances and partnerships. Um, I think you heard a nice distillation of the lessons learned from the two-day scenario exercise we did with uh, Japan, Australia, US former officials. Really, as you heard from, from Pete and Haley and Zach, really showed how um, tight the American, Japanese, Australian view of the security situation has become. Um, and I think in different ways that extends to other allies and partners. We'll, we'll get into that with this, with this panel. Um, we're, we're joined by two new uh, members. Um, this panel, everyone here works for me or worked for me at one point. <laughs> so afterwards in the bar, they'll tell you what they really think, but they'll be well behaved for now, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, As a teacher. Right? Yeah, so um, Aki uh, Nagashima, uh, a member of the Japanese um, parliament, um, uh, is a seventh term member. Um, he's a member of the Liberal Democratic Party in the House of Representatives. Um, he served as State Minister of Defense and as National Security Advisor under Prime Minister Noda. Um, and he worked at Council on Foreign Relations with me as a um, uh, adjunct senior fellow and as a research associate. Um, and uh, that was in the late 90s yes. where Aki did research on concepts around force posture, yes. um, um, uh, you know, networking, all the stuff that's happening today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, in your, whatever it was, your 20s, you, um, you, uh, you wrote about it, and it's, it's all a matter of public record. <clears throat> and um, uh, in addition to Pete and Zach joining us, Dr. Garena Gurkic, she's senior lecturer in US politics and foreign policy, <clears throat> appointed jointly at the US Studies Center um, and in the School of Social and Political Sciences. Um, uh, Gorana, I think, is probably Australia's top expert on NATO. I'm, I'm quite certain that's right. Oh. She's spent a lot of time uh, in um, Europe working with NATO-affiliated institutions, had, I think, a pretty um, uh, heavy hand in the NATO strategic concept, particularly the Indo-Pacific bit. So in terms of thinking about allies and partners as they extend not just across the Pacific, but across the Atlantic, um, Garana is the perfect person to help us out. Um, the, uh, the two sayings about alliances that sort of capture why they're important and hard uh, that I always turn to are Napoleon's favorite line, that he liked to fight against coalitions and allies because he could find the wedges and divide them, which he did at multiple battles until Waterloo, where Blucher and Wellington, against the odds, stuck it out to the end, and uh, Napoleon couldn't divide them, and the rest is history. Um, and then Winston Churchill, who said the only thing worse than having to fight uh, with allies at your side is having to fight without allies at your side. They're critical, they're important. Our polling shows um, support for alliances is uh, about as strong as it's ever been. In Japan and Korea right now, support for the US alliance is over 90%. And I can tell you honestly, it's not because Americans are suddenly more lovable. Um, it's because of the security environment. Okay, Phil Davidson is more lovable. <laughs> um, now that he's out of uniform, right? <laughs> um, uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the challenge, and it's the sort of recognition in publics that these alliances are indispensable. I don't think 90% of Japanese like sushi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, the sport fly is incredible, and it's, it's equally high in Korea. Um, not quite as high as in Australia, but in historical terms, very, very strong. Um, and in the US, support for alliances is high. Um, the public gets it, this discussion shows it, <clears throat> but our alliances are largely 
still configured around um, constructs, authorities, treaties that were um, established before the internet was invented, basically. And so the operating software is, um, is analog. And uh, we're in a digital security world. So the mechanics matter. Um, and we want to try to dive into some of that in this discussion. Um, but I thought I'd start where I started with um, the first panel, which is to put our alliances in a global context, in a global perspective. Um, uh, someone in the first panel quoted our friend Kurt Campbell, who has spent a lot of his work uh, at defense, when I worked for him, at state and at the White House, trying to bridge the transatlantic divide over, uh, over China and the Indo-Pacific strategic issues. Um, and Kurt said, what was it, Garana, that it's a, it's a single front? Single theater. Single theater. Um, uh, that, so the first question for you all, and I'll start with you, Garana, is it a, is it a single? Theater. We've got Ukraine, um, the Chinese economic coercion, um, uh, information uh, competition, uh, as you saw in your time in in in, in NATO affiliated, insti affiliated institutions pulling us together. But then we've got Gaza, Ukraine, Taiwan, Pacific Islands pulling us apart in terms of attention resources. So, where on the spectrum are we in terms of single theater? So I would put single theater to be this sort of ideal um, endpoint of cross-theater cooperation, which we see now over the past couple of years intensifying to the point that we actually couldn't have expected just maybe a decade ago or so, um, because when, for instance, Obama announced the infamous pivot or the rebalance, um, the European allies were up in arms, right? Some of them said, this is the most dangerous thing that's happening to us. Uh, we are being left on our own now, and we are going to have to figure out how we defend ourselves. Uh, and it was seen largely as a zero sum. What I think we've seen over the past couple of years, and some of this has to do, of course, with Ukraine, but also before that, um, is increasing signs of Europeans being interested in the Indo-Pacific, whether we see this um, through these articulations of Indo-Pacific strategies on part of uh, EU states, uh, starting with France, then Germany, Netherlands, uh, UK, of course, not part of the EU, but uh, another one um, that, that made these sort of ambitions through the um, uh, Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, so some of this came before Ukraine, but really after Ukraine, we've seen this sort of joint uh, uh, sense of purpose and, and commitment to uh, values that we really haven't seen before in, in a way that these days, these allies uh, of the United States are talking in a way that uh, blurs the lines of the geographical divide. And so much so, you mentioned, I, I've been part of some of these conversations um, within NATO, the uh, sort of manifestation of this cross-theater cooperation now with NATO and the Indo-Pacific Four, or the formerly Asia-Pacific Four, has really undergone a transformation where the partnership these days is not about providing security for third parties only, but also is being seen as uh, essential for defense and deterrence of these allies and partners. So the fact that NATO countries see uh, in 
especially Australia and Japan uh, out of the four. There is also New Zealand and Korea, but these two uh, is, is really partners that are essential uh, for, for their own defense and not just for uh, the sort of out of area operations um, like we've seen in Afghanistan, for instance, or even before that um, in the Balkans. You don't have to do every member of NATO, but generally, how does NATO uh, break down in terms of support for um, uh, uh, more attention to the Indo-Pacific, more cooperation with Japan, Australia, Korea? The French reportedly blocked uh, the move to open a NATO office in Tokyo. Uh, the UK, the Danes, the, the maritime Nordic powers have been much more inclined to do it. How would you, how would you describe the, the temperature right now? Well, in terms of European security architecture and, and sort of these paradigms that dominate these discussions, there is this thing called the strategic autonomy. So whoever is in favor of some sort of uh, strategic autonomy for uh, uh, Europe uh, would be very much against these sort of excursions uh, this far out of the area. So you're right, France would be one of the leading sort of voices uh, that uh, obviously because of all of the Ocas um, Bruja if I can say, was very much against it. Um, and uh, some of the others uh, who are very much concerned, obviously, about what's happening on NATO's eastern flank uh, would also be concerned about going that far out of the area. So Baltics, uh, to an extent, but having said that, um, Baltic states are actually some of the first movers and, and kind of uh, uh, have been really leading the chart, uh, charge when it comes to uh, asserting a particular values and norms around Taiwan, for instance, so Lithuania being one of those. Um, so there is a bit of that divide. And then there are others who are trying to navigate uh, now what we see uh, European Union going through a transformation really in terms of uh, um, what its role in the world is as a geopolitical and geoeconomic actor and trying to, to keep a lockstep with that. But I think the divide mainly uh, uh, revolves around the sort of the need for Europeans to become strategically autonomous and those who feel that uh, US still has a large role to play in Europe moving further. Um, and I imagine the 2024 election is going to exacerbate that split and we are going to come, I'm not going to do an entire panel on allies and partners and not go back to the discussion we had earlier about the US election because it will matter. So I imagine that outcome will affect the debate in Europe. Uh, Aki, um, I remember before you became National Security Advisor even, um, and this is because I'm a Japan uh, foreign policy geek, but uh, you and some of your colleagues um, after the um, uh, 2010 crisis, I think it was 2012 crisis over Senkaku, yeah. um, produced a strategic document, just, I think just before you became National Security Advisor, okay. that was basically an external balancing strategy to deal with China. Uh, Japan had to strengthen not only the US, um, uh, Japan Alliance, but also Australia, and you, and you mentioned NATO in Europe early on, yeah. and as National Security Advisor worked on that, and Japan's been uh, very focused on this um, uh, bridging of alliances, yes. um, it, and not just in terms of security, but in the G7 and other ways. Um, AP. Uh, yeah, how do you feel at the AP, IP4 and stuff, how do you feel, is it working for Japanese security? Is there, uh, are there relations with Europe? Um, that are enhancing Japan's position strategically? Yeah, actually, uh, uh, at that time, uh, we are f were really interested in the, uh, expanding our you know, security uh, horizon. And uh, um, 
you know, as far as the uh, you know grand strategic objectives are shared, which is the uh, preserving the status quo of the international relations. So we should engage as many IAS uh, structures as possible. Uh, then I, we propose the, to expand the uh, uh, foreign policies, national security policy uh, relations to NATO, uh, as well as the Korea, uh, Australia. Actually, yeah, we, that administration started the uh, two plus two arrangements with Australia. The two plus two? Two plus two. Yeah. Uh, ministerial uh, uh, meeting uh, arrangements started that uh, with the with the Australia at that time uh, next to the United States. We suppose that Korea is, is the next, but the, actually the Australia uh, was the next one. And is the most important contribution from NATO or from Europe in an East Asia contingency, Taiwan, East China Sea, is the most important contribution Economic? Is it sort of the mirror of what Japan and Australia and others did on Ukraine? Yes. So any military dimension? Um, not as important. UK may may mm. be you know coming to 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 help us, but uh, primarily you know that I, I understand that a kind of division of uh, uh, responsibility, mm. area of responsibility. So NATO mainly focus on the, the Europe and North Africa and Middle East, while Japan and Australia, Korea uh, is uh, focusing on the uh, East Asia because we don't want to be overstretching uh, yeah. resources. <laughs> I think the Ukraine invasion clearly um, had an effect in driving these Pacific and Atlantic alliances together. Yeah. It, it, the Ukraine invasion changed how uh, the Japanese and other uh, US allies in Asia thought about war and peace. I mean, the Poles in Japan had a marked departure um, in how Japanese people thought about threats once they saw what happened in Ukraine. Um, I want to ask Zach in a second if that's true for Gaza. And how Gaza, I'm going to give you a minute to think, um, impacts all this. Because it's not quite as clean, to, to be sure, in terms of the geopolitical effects. But first, Pete, um, when you were doing the DSR, this is your opportunity to tell us all the classified bits nobody read. <laughs> <clears throat> um, how did you think about external balancing NATO? Um, obviously, AUKUS puts a very, very strong uh, uh, link to the UK, but how much of that informed the strategic thinking behind DSR? Oh, absolutely, because I mean, at, at the heart of the strategy behind the D in, the, in the DSR is a balancing strategy. That's fundamentally what it's about. So obviously, you know, strategy starts with a map of where you live. <laughs> you know, in terms of hard power elements, geography really starts to matter. But if you look out more broadly in an era of strategic competition, in modern deterrence and modern approaches, it's not just about hard power. It's also about you know, economic security, which we've been talking a lot about. It's about diplomacy. It's about the commitment to the status quo, as Aki said, about the rules-based global order, if you like to use that term. Um, it's about diplomacy. It's about the connectivity between those theatres. So, Within the DSR, obviously, there's a, there's a, it's a strategy driven around allies and partners in the attempt to maintain a, a balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. That's what it's fundamentally in. Australia's recognition that it has to contribute more to that 
but it has to do that in partnership with the US as kind of like a, a cornerstone balancing power for the one of another term, the importance of the Japan relationship, the importance of all the other multilateral groupings and strategic partnerships that Australia has around the region about attempting to maintain that regional balance. And I think when it comes to something like AUKUS, and AUKUS is a really interesting example. I've just come back from, from London where um, Alice Nason and I did a whole bunch of work with, with CSIS and with, with RUSI on AUKUS and Pillar One and in particular. But when you look at AUKUS, it's about shared technology issues and shared industrial base issues that are actually theatre agnostic. So while the US-Australia part of AUKUS can be very focused on, Indo on the Indo-Pacific and deterrence, Australia and the UK developing an AUKUS submarine together, well, those submarines will operate for Australia overwhelmingly in the Indo-Pacific and overwhelmingly in the Euro-Atlantic theatre for the United Kingdom. It's actually about that technology piece, it's about sharing that technology. And then you get into pillar two, and you start also then talking about space and cyber and quantum and AI that are not bounded by geography. So there's a, in this era of strategic competition, it's how you reconcile the hard power realities. So if a conflict or a crisis happened in the South or East China Sea, it's like Aki, like I don't expect to see, you know, NATO flag vessels sailing, you know, to the rescue. Mm -hmm. um, but the critical importance, as we've seen the support from Asia-Pacific allies towards supporting Ukraine, to backing NATO, to supporting diplomacy, economic security measures, uh, defence industrial-based questions, which have all raised the need to raise that more. That's where you see that interconnectivity. And it's things like, for the Indo-Pacific, you know, Economics, trade and power matters, right? Europe is more and more interested because of their trade with China, their trade with Southeast Asia, their trade with Japan, their trade with other countries, which makes the UK the second largest economy in the CTTPP, the second largest economy behind Japan. I mean, that matters for the UK because of that economic investment and the trade. And then that's flown through as we see into the GCAP um, commitment with Japan to develop a fighter. So there's lots of different ways this can, can matter. So geography is still critically important. DSR points out, you know, the, the map and it defines really clearly what defence's core operational areas are, but it also situates that within that broader balancing strategy and that broader engagement across the globe. So the professors in, in, in us are thinking right now, we're in an era when geography is more important than it's been in 100 years, perhaps, First and Second Island chain, forced posture, and Australia's position as a fulcrum between the Indian and Pacific Oceans, <coughs> um, choke points, um, and yet geography matters less than ever. Cyber, outer space, information campaigns, um, and uh, supply chains. Yeah. <coughs> so, um, coexist. Excellent exam question. There are some students in the, in the room, though. We have to be careful. Um, right, Zach, you get the hard one. It seems to me um, a little oversimplified, but, but Ukraine taught us two really uh, important geopolitical lessons. One was good, one was troubling. The good one was, and fortunately, I think Beijing got this message too, you attack a free people anywhere in the world, and free people elsewhere will expect their governments to uh, punish you. Um, and that's a pretty powerful deterrent, as Foreign Minister, I think, Hayashi said in Japan, yeah. uh, explaining Japan's very strong response, a real departure in Japan's Russia policy. Um, right. I mean, for a long time, Russia was sort of the card to deal with China, threw that card out the window, punished China, and as Hayashi Gaisho said, China's watching. So very powerful um, uh, dissuasion, if not deterrence, 
Um, we don't use dissuasion as much anymore, but dissuasion meaning the consequences are clear, even if it's not kinetic. Uh, very, on the, uh, uh, very strong. On the other hand, I think most governments were a bit shocked at how Russia, a not terribly powerful economy, um, had a considerable amount of success in the so-called Global South. I don't mind calling it the Global South because India prefers that and they're our best friend in the Global South, but um, remarkable um, success for Russia and China in the narratives, in the information operations. You look at Gaza, um, that's a really hard one. I, I think that personally, President Biden's exactly right with his approach. Israel has a right to defend itself. We're helping. If you're worried about collateral damage, um, uh, de-escalation getting out of this, then you hug Israel even tighter and help. So I think what he's doing is right. But in terms of the global competition among great powers and the response of the global south, it's complicated. It's very complicated and could be complicating for this region. So um, how do you see what's happening in the Middle East right now in terms of its impact on, on the Indo-Pacific and on our alliances with Australia, with Japan, Korea, and others? Well, I think the way to analyze the Ukraine situation is to think, what, what do allies and partners outside of Europe think when they look at Ukraine, right? And I, I think uh, Grana and I spent some time in Brussels earlier in the year debating this. Uh, and I think the best way to think about this is it's a trade-off between the prioritization that the U.S. or others put on a certain region and the reputation that the U.S. or others have for standing with their friends, right? So if you're Japan looking at Ukraine, uh, the more the U.S. puts effort into Ukraine, the less prioritized you feel sitting in Tokyo, but also the more clear it is that the U.S. is establishing a reputation for standing with friends. So there's a trade-off there. Now, when I look at the Ukraine situation, I think, you know, for Japan, for many others, this is a pretty easy trade-off. The U.S. doesn't have boots on the ground. We're spending, in reality, a very small amount of money as U.S. defense budget goes to decimate the entire Russian military. Um, so I think that's a pretty easy calculus, which is why you've yeah. seen so many advanced industrial democracies be so supportive. Uh, I think Gaza is a completely different situation. My guess is if the level of violence continues as we've seen it, the U.S. is going to find itself, as, as we have recently with Australia and even with Japan, uh, with some gaps between its policies and those of its closest allies. Now, um, I'm going to put aside the question of what the right Israeli or American no, no, response that's, is that's in fine. Gaza, <laughs> but I, I think the, the reason this is going to be a problem potentially is um, we keep talking about pivoting one way or another to Asia. And I think, you know, if we're engaged in the short term, in supporting uh, Israel. Uh, it doesn't really raise the prioritization questions too much, but I think you're hearing Americans and many abroad ask, can the US keep doing this in Europe, in the Middle East, at the same time that it's trying to do more in Asia? Yeah. Now, my personal view is we don't have American troops fighting in either Ukraine or Israel, so I think we can, but I think that argument is getting harder and harder, and you're seeing it certainly in the American Congress. So I think the challenge is going to be um, you know, we're watching the global south. Mm. I have a little different view than you maybe on, mm. on Russia. So I don't think the global south supported Russian no, no, action in Ukraine, no. right? It's just that what they care about is local issues. Yeah. And they're not directly affected, most of them, by what's happening in Ukraine. Um, so, so understandably, it wasn't a high priority. I think many of them do feel directly affected by Gaza, right? Go to Indonesia and talk to Indonesians about how they feel about Gaza. They have very strong feelings. Yeah. So my guess is we're going to see some real seams open up over, 
over the Israel situation over the next couple of months if we don't see a, a bit of a shift? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you actually on Ukraine. It's not that the so-called Global South is aligning with Russia. I think American, Australian, Japanese, European diplomats are frustrated that they're not aligning more with us. Yeah. And we're learning not just about the priorities they have locally, but the sort of post-colonial consciousness and a lot of other complicated, complicated politics um, that go into it as well. And on Gaza, um, look, if this spreads to a wider war involving Iran, Australia may not be as affected as Japan and Korea, but in terms of imports of, of, of energy, of oil and gas, it's pretty significant for Japan and Korea in particular. So I don't know, Aki, do people in, in Tokyo think about the Middle East in those terms? If the US is not engaged, uh, there's a danger of a wider conflict that actually would be quite uh, uh, threatening for Japan and Korea's economic position? Or do you think the view in Tokyo is, we wish you were in Asia more, please? Yeah, uh, you know, we are, of course, we are worried about the uh, resources, energy resources problem. But uh, what concerns us the most is the diversifying the U.S. Uh, military resources from the from East Asia toward uh, Europe and the Middle East. So we really hope that the Middle East uh, uh, conflict is. Uh, completing finishing pretty soon, but it's not. I mean, case. our friend Kurt Campbell coined the phrase the pivot in 2011, but the really, reality is the beginning of the Bush, uh, Obama, uh, uh, Biden, I mean, pretty much every administration since the end of the Cold War has wanted to pivot to Asia, yeah. just using different words. Um, and as one colleague put it to me, it's a bit like Marlon Brando in that movie On the Waterfront. You try to get out and they pull you back in to the Middle East. And it's so compelling for Americans and so hard to ignore strategically. Yeah. Uh, let's talk AUKUS for a minute. AUKUS, yeah. Um, uh, Pete, I think it's worth just putting on the table because we haven't quite done it today. Um, why AUKUS? Why is, uh, Pillar 1 in particular, we'll come to Pillar 2, why is an undersea capability that's stealthy, that's, you know, has long legs, has dwell time, why is that important? You've written about it in the DSR and elsewhere, but I just think we should put it on the table. And then I want to ask Aki about Japan's view. Oh, look, again, as I mentioned before, strategy starts with a map of where you live. There's a fantastic map in the public version of the DSR I encourage you all to, to get. I blew it up for all of our participants in our, in our simulation and stuck it on their tables this week. It's actually an army map, which is what makes it so interesting because it shows Australia on a particular angle and it shows the, the region. And you can't but help if you stare at that map long, long enough to realise we're an island. And then you look at the statistics, 99% of our trade goes by sea. 95% of our telecommunications goes by undersea cable. We had the third largest exclusive economic zone at 8.2 million square kilometres. And we live in an overwhelmingly maritime environment. So the sea is exceptionally important to the lifeblood, our economy, our way of life and everything. The Navy is the primary guardian of that domain and a submarine is their most effective tool. And what we're talking about here is a quantum leap in technology and capability from a diesel electric submarine to a nuclear powered submarine in power and in range and endurance in missiles and sensors and systems. If you think more and more autonomous systems are going to be the way that this is going to go. Well, I would prefer to have a nuclear-powered submarine with a reactor in it with unlimited power to power those sensors and power those autonomous systems 
than a diesel electric submarine that constantly has to come to the surface, even with the most advanced battery technology. And the other dis fundamental thing about that map, it shows you the distance we have to travel those submarines. For Japan, their conventional submarines basically go out of port and submerge and are in their operational zone. You've got to leave HMAS Stirling and there is a long sail time to get to Australia's principal operating areas that it needs to be able to go in. So you get that range and you get that endurance. Ultimately, that also then comes down to the, not just the protection of Australia, but broader deterrence, our commitment to that broader um, balance of power in the region. And deterrence, everyone likes to talk about the kit and capability part, and, and there's a fantastic rationale for a nuclear-powered submarine. But AUKUS, the announcement of AUKUS, Deterrence has a fundamental political dimension to it. It's demonstrating resolve and unity of purpose, both in Pillar 1 and in Pillar 2. And yes, it may take a while for these submarines to arrive, but let's not forget the first submarine, a Virginia class, if we can get through Congress and get the legislation to pass and that happens and, and, uh, and we buy one, we're not, we're not being gifted it, we're buying one from the United States somewhere, they will arrive at the same time as our conventional attack class submarines that we were planning on building would have arrived. And by the time the first SSN AUKUS arrives, that's also at the back end of where that would have happened. And if you add up the cost of those French attack class submarines, not just the cost of the build, but the cost of the sustainment, the weapons and everything that went along with it, you're into the realm of $260, $270 billion. So you're in the bottom end. Everyone forgets there was two figures in AUKUS, if you remember, the $250 billion to $360 billion. Well, you're well past the $250 billion for those diesel electric submarines. But those S the SSN capability is going to give you extraordinary extra power and capability, extraordinarily additional deterrent effect. And we've gone from an era where, you know, we've got Ambassador Beasley in, in the room, you know, the, the key architect with, with the DIB review in the 87 white paper, which was about the defence of Australia against low-level or escalated low-level threats, where we could have a regional military capability edge. Our defence force was superior to everybody else in the region. Now what the DSR brought home and what the DSU highlighted, so it's a bipartisan commitment, is that era is over. This is the era of great power strategic competition, which is the defining era of age, and the threat is major war. Not low-level conflict, but major war. So we don't have a broad-based military capability edge. We need an asymmetric capability edge. And as Zach said in the panel we were talking about earlier, denial is far easier than control. And a submarine is an ultimate weapon of denial and, an, and a clear commitment towards deterrence and the regional balance. So I, I would say there's a really strong strategic rationale. I'd really like to see the government hoover up the different statements by our Chief of Navy, our Minister of Defence, the Prime Minister, who have baited various things into a clear, unequivocal document that lays out the strategic case of AUKUS. We're getting nuclear-powered submarines not because of jobs in Adelaide or Western Australia, um, but we're getting them because there's a strategic purpose to having them. And I'd really like to see the government collect that strategic purpose up and make a really powerful statement around that. Um, the absence of that, I think, is allowing some other commentators and some other people to sort of chip away at that. And we've also got to look at the, the alternatives that have been put forward. They're generally never costed. You know, a former colleague of mine who talks about, well, we should have 24 conventional submarines. Go and have a look at the cost of that, way in excess of what nuclear-powered submarines were. 
and, you know, and way higher requirement for crewing, for maintenance, sustainment, and a whole bunch of other things. Aki, um, we asked the Japanese public uh, their view of AUKUS. Most didn't have a strong opinion, but those who did were overwhelmingly supportive in Japan of the idea that Australia should have this capability. Um, how do you see it? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Japan strongly supports uh, uh, AUKUS. The enhancement of Australian submarine capability will contribute to the improvement of the deterrence in the region. And we welcome, we also welcome the UK's involvement in the Indo-Pacific region as an active player. And cooperation between AUKUS and Japan remains at the stage of possibility now. But AI, cyber, quantum technology, hypersonic, and, and electronic warfare systems set forth in AUKUS are areas of keen interest to Japan. The first, we would like to see progress in discussions within the three countries. Uh, but there is a, also the possibility of cooperation with Japan in the future. Since the primary objectives of uh, the AUKUS is the introduction of the nuclear submarine force to Australia in order to reinforce the nuclear deterrence in the Western Pacific. Frankly speaking, I am very, very interested in uh, establishing someday a kind of collective nuclear deterrent mechanism with AUKUS and with uh, South Korea. And if you seriously think about the overall deterrent structure uh, from the conventional weapons to the nuclear. I think once Japan enters into the serious discussion about the nuclear deterrence, the deployment of American ground-launched intermediate-range missiles will also move up the agenda uh, as well. At the same time, I would like to ask my American colleagues uh, to reconsider the decision to abandon submarine, submarine launched uh, nuclear capable tomahawks. Mm. So those, you know, set up the uh, discussions we can, uh, you know. So let me, um, let me go to Zach on that one. Um, when, you know, the U.S. does periodic nuclear posture reviews in the Pentagon. And um, uh, for the past few reviews, the, the authors of this in the Pentagon, I think, would tell you that by far the most influential voice outside of the U.S. on those strategic decisions is Japan, which has been hyper-focused on extended deterrence, but increasingly now Australia mm. and Korea. And you had the dialogue on extended deterrence in Washington, and you got a flavor of that. Um, Zach, I'm going to ask you about Donald Trump. But first, <laughs> um, first, can you respond to Aki about um, the U.S. Uh, uh, sub-based uh, deterrent and uh, why we're not always doing what Japan wants. Yeah, Gaza, nuclear weapons, and Donald Trump. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> plus, plus, plus jet lag. <laughs> so um, I, I couldn't agree more with Nakashima-san. So I, I think we have this special moment now where the U.S. and South Korea are really pressing ahead in their relationship. Yes. We had the Washington Declaration just this spring. Um, Japan isn't quite there because your prime minister is from Hiroshima and, and is not quite ready to have these conversations. But I think Japan is heading towards having more discussions about extended deterrence. And clearly this is happening in the Australia context and the US Studies Center has been at the center of a lot of this. I, I think the next step 
is a quadrilateral extended deterrence dialogue involving the United States, South Korea, Japan, and Australia. And let's be clear, there are going to be some differences, and Guarana could go on at length about the challenges in the Nuclear Planning Council within NATO, right? There are differences, but getting everyone out on the same page to understand how does the United States think about deterrence, including at the nuclear level, um, what would that mean for how we work with our key allies in the region? I think that would be incredibly valuable. Some of this is, is education, right? Like in the NATO context, just so the allies understand what the American capabilities are, and also so that Americans can hear when there's something like sea launch cruise missile that the US isn't investing in, why it is that allies think this is an important thing. So I think this would be incredibly valuable. And I would think out of a dialogue like that, which it's a really good proposal, you, you would make um, tweaks to U.S. declaratory policy. You'd think about capabilities, um, but you'd also have, I guess, what you call early warning. You'd know that if there was a North Korean uh, uh, nuclear test again, or a Russian threat to use tactical nuclear weapons, a, a more serious threat against Europe, or something from Beijing, you would know already who to talk to, how to align declaratory policy, operations, deployments, um, uh, flexible insurance options in a crisis, because you would have had that dialogue already in place. It's the advantage, uh, probably, of the NATO uh, uh, nuclear bit, as much as anything, is, is being ready for a crisis. Um, uh, so there aren't scenes or openings, um, because the other side, as Putin is trying to do right now, will use nuclear weapons to try to open those seams and divide allies. Okay, now the fun part. Um, so in our surveys, uh, which you have, uh, the question was asked, if Donald Trump is president, is it bad for Australia and Japan? 45% uh, of Australians said it's bad, 40% of Japanese. But for context, um, uh, 14% of Japanese said Joe Biden's re-election would be bad, <laughs> and 19% uh, of Australians said Joe Biden's re-election would be bad. Uh. Um, we asked, um, I say we, Jared asked, I thought this was too spicy, but I let him <laughs> ask it, um, uh, would, would you want to withdraw from the alliance with the U.S. Uh, in that event? Um, in Australia, 37% of the respondents said yes, 44% said no. Um, uh, I, I personally read that as a bit troubling, but actually in a way reassuring, because that's a, a sort of a, a temperature check. Um, in Japan, uh, only 11% said that if Donald Trump's reelected, Japan should step away from the alliance. But again, in Japan, the alliance has over 90% uh, support. Um, Zach, we have limited time. Um, we saw what the first Trump administration was like. We know what the former president said about alliances. But we also saw that Scott Morrison, um, and especially Abe Shinzo, um, got a lot out of the US in those years. What worries you about this scenario that people aren't thinking about? And what are people worried about that they shouldn't be worried about? What worries me? Okay, so we've got another hour, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you want, you can go back to Gaza. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so let me let me just give you two two concerns, uh, but let me start with maybe a bit of reassurance because I I think the fact that you know 37% of Australians want to do away with the U.S.-Australia alliance if Donald Trump gets elected, and, and oh by the way, 19% of Australians said they didn't know. That's terrifying mm. as an American. And frankly, I understand, but um, here are two reassurances. Number one, Donald Trump is going to focus on Asia because he doesn't care about any other region in the world. He doesn't care about Europe. 
He's going to throw Ukraine overboard. I'm not sure how much he cares about Israel, given the comments he's made in the last week or so. Um, we know he doesn't care about Africa or Latin America. Um, so this is it. This is the only region. So if you're worried about the reputation versus prioritization trade-off, you're prioritized. You're, in fact, the only place that is possible to be prioritized. So that's one. The second part is I actually think there's a lot of support on the Republican side for AUKUS. And the problems we're having right now on pillar one of AUKUS are about shipbuilding money. Well, here's the good news. Republicans are all on board with shipbuilding money. Now, Donald Trump didn't get as much shipbuilding money as he wanted, but um, the guy who I think would be his secretary of state is pushing for a 600-ship navy. So there's going to be shipbuilding money there eventually. And that means that if you're worried about getting pillar one through, well, you know, some of your concerns are going to be alleviated. So that's, that's the good news for Australia. Here's the bad news, or at least two pieces of bad news. Um, first, I think Trump 2.0 would have much worse people than Trump 1.0. And the reason is, I, I have a hard time thinking of Republicans who are going to go work for Donald Trump that I've ever heard of that do national security work. I can think of three. Um, and most of the people who worked for him the first time aren't going back. Right. They learned their lesson. He, they were burned by what he did on January 6th. They were burned because he attacked them personally for working for him. They don't want to do this. So I think you're going to get a much less competent uh, political class coming in than you had under the first administration, which had its challenges. So that's, that's one problem. And the second problem is that I don't think we have any idea of um, what Trump might do when he's unburdened by the advisors who are trying to slow him down in the first term. I, I think we have a sense that he wants to throw Ukraine overboard. That's very clear, right? Um, I think on Taiwan, there are going to be some difficult factors, right? It's very clear that Donald Trump doesn't really care about Taiwan. Now, Republicans want to be tough on China. So this is going to be a really hard thing to watch if Trump's elected, what happens between the president and the Congress. And I think it would leave a lot of US allies in a very awkward spot. Um, so you know, I understand why 37% of Australians want to rethink the alliance if he's elected. Um, I think the bottom line is the best thing for Australia to do is things like trilateral or quadrilateral cooperation, try and tie the United States down as much as you can into these groupings so that Trump has a little bit less leverage to move. Um, but let's be honest, as Europe found out, that, that only gets you so far. So if Joe Biden gets reelected, it's likely that a core part of his strategy will be um, more um, unilateral groupings and networking of alliances, AUKUS, QUAD, TSD. If Donald Trump gets uh, elected, that would likely continue uh, for the administration. But if you're Australia or Japan or Canada, that should be your strategy because <laughs> that's how you shape the U.S. The other thing, uh, two other things that I think are takeaways from the first Trump administration. One is for friends from a Westminster system, um, the U.S. federal system divided government gives Congress enormous power uh, over the budget, over appointments of officials, and very quietly throughout the first Trump administration, um, Republicans primarily um, put in place all kinds of roadblocks through legislation, budget decisions, and they didn't do it alone. They did it um, very quietly with our closest allies. And then the third lesson is um, uh, you want to be Abe Shinzo. 
Yeah. You don't want to be, um, I won't mention names, but you don't want to be the prime minister who publicly chooses to um, fight because um, you'll be in a much worse position. Right. Anyway, it'll be uh, 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 lots of fun. <laughs> um, and as our political panel said, at this far out from the election, who knows? So many things can happen between now and then, but it is not too soon, I think, for allies, um, for members of the U.S. Congress, for think tanks to sort of think through yeah. what were the lessons from last time. Uh, personally, having written a very long history of U.S. Uh, strategy in the Indo-Pacific, I think the, the structural factors, the American strategic and political culture, uh, the importance of alliances, the way Americans respond to strategic competition, there are a lot of structural uh, institutional geopolitical factors that will add continuity, but it's going to be, as the poll shows, unnerving uh, if we if we end up there. Um, we're out of time. I just want to give um, a speed round, and this will uh, sort of open up a discussion for people as they Uber home. Um, in our alliances and partnerships, we've talked about a lot of things, command and control, uh, munitions, uh, resources. Uh, what thing would you prioritize? Um, for uh, for Washington on alliances right now, where, where would you um, where would you ask maximum focus uh, to get these alliances fit for purpose in the geopolitical environment we're describing? We'll go down the line, um, Pete. Um, I'm with my uh, colleague John Kunkel here. We've got to stop faffing around in our own national strategies and actually get on with it. So I think speed is a uh, uh, time is not on our side. Speed is an important area. We need to, and, and to narrow down on one thing, if you look at AUKUS, Pillar One's going about as fast as it can because of domestic political issues in the US and just the, the nature of building submarines. It's Pillar Two. We should be moving faster on Pillar Two. We should be allocating more resources to it and getting the institutional architecture around that moving much more quickly. And as a number of speakers said, we have friends and allies who are not in AUKUS Pillar Two and there are tech complications with ITAR, but nevertheless, Japan, Korea, yep. and others who have enormous capacity yep. and technology and innovation, and we should be moving fast to tap it. Garana? Um, so if alliances are the secret sauce, then continuing the trend of uh, increasing cooperation among allies across theaters. So, um, but also if we speak specifically about Indo-Pacific theater, more of the spoke-to-spoke -spoke rather than hub-to-spoke cooperation. Um, but I would say in terms of this sort of idea of cross-theater cooperation to uh, really uh, uh, push this even further. And Zach mentioned we were both freezing in Brussels earlier in the year, and um, there is this sentiment, at least in the Biden administration, that um, they're talking these days about allies rather than regional allies, so single group of allies, which I think is also good as a jolt to Europeans to um, do something about their defense, uh, because as you uh, said rightly, uh, if Trump is in, I think NATO is going to be in a lot of trouble, and it's going to take a lot of then um, legislative action to again uh, secure it through various bills to, to uh, ensure that commitment and um, yeah we'll see if it lives past 75 that's a good sort of age expectancy but you know a lot of people dream that it's going to be around for another 75 years but if Trump is there um, that might be put into question. The, the transatlantic alliances will have a harder time than the transpacific alliances because of cultural factors, domestic politics, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it better to be an Asian ally right now in that scenario. Zach? I think the key word for me is institutionalization. 
I think the Biden team has done a pretty remarkable job of coming up with a whole range of new ideas, and Kirk Campbell, you know, has driven, you know, you could think of probably 12 big agenda items, right? Um, I think now, though, the time for grand new ideas is over. The time for implementation and um, locking in those gains is here. And you know, the next year to basically prepare for what would happen if Donald Trump wins, we're going to have to focus on making sure that those big new ideas are institutionalized so that if we do get a Trump administration, we don't see uh, a slide back. Or if, if Biden gets reelected, that they actually have made real progress and then can jump off on that in the second term. You worked in the NSC. You know the announcements are always easier than the implementation. <laughs> yep. Um, but, but quite right. Aki? Yeah, you, we, we should admit that uh, the balance of military power in the region is rapidly shifting toward China. In this serious strategic circumstance, the most important thing is deterrence, credible deterrence. So instead of asking the Washington, uh, I would like to ask American people to vote, to elect the right person to fit, the, fit for this, this you know, strategic environment. <laughs> um, Please. <laughs> we don't have absentee voting in Japan. We don't even have compulsory voting, but uh, good advice. Um, <laughs> Uh, Pete Garana, uh, Zach and Aki, uh, thank you. Really rich discussion. Thank you. Um, we're going to turn now back to Victoria and Jared. They're going to give you a few more bits from the survey. I think they also have the result of the survey questions we asked all of you. And then we'll turn to Mark Bailey, our chairman, for a vote of thanks. Please join me in thanking the panel. <laughs> thank you very much.